0: Hello welcome to the University of Brighton podcast I'm Richard Newman over the past month or so we've been concentrating on the response to the coronavirus pandemic in all manner of ways and we'll continue to do that over the coming weeks but what we haven't discussed yet is social distancing and the lockdown itself to talk about that this week I'm joined by Dr Chris Cocking principal lecturer in the School of Health Sciences Chris we've had approaching four weeks of lockdown how are you finding everything?
1: Um, uh, me personally, I'm kind of just getting along with it. Um, I'm kind of, uh, you get into a little routine of doing things. I mean, obviously, the research I've done and how people deal with these things has helped because it's made me realise that the vast majority of people are resilient. Um, So that, that kind of, that reassures me. It's
0: great to have you on to speak about this. Tell us a bit about your background and area of research, first of all.
1: Okay, so um, I've got a kind of dual background. Um, Academically, um, I'm a psychologist uh, by trade. I'm a social psychologist, so I'm interested in looking at um, crowd behaviour, collective action, all different ways when people come together, be it at a festival, a gathering in an emergency or a demonstration. Um, So that's my kind of thing that I look at academically, is how do people behave in crowds? And I also... Uh, did my nurse training at the University of Brighton um, as a psychiatric nurse and I've worked with uh, young people in child and adolescent mental health services.
0: Let's talk about what we're all going through now then. The lockdown has been extended um, as expected. How do you think the public have responded to it in general?
1: Um, I think people have behaved um, remarkably well. That doesn't surprise me. Um, that's what I would have expected. I remember I was interviewed by Sky News um, just as the lockdown was coming into force. Um, and the pundits and the politicians at the time seemed very concerned about people's adherence to it. Um, and when they're talking about people's adherence to it, which is what myself and other colleagues who researched this would have expected, they all seem quite surprised but people do tend to behave uh, remarkably resiliently in public emergencies the the crucial thing is how do you kind of take the mass of the people um, and encourage them that this is the right and proper thing to do and it's for um, everyone's collective well-being to do it but no, I'm not surprised that people do seem to be sticking to it and I'm uh, I'm pleased that they are
0: yeah before the main lockdown came in there were lots of reports of course in the media about people ignoring the guidance, but since the measures have been brought in, it has been largely adhered to, hasn't it? And we even got through a really sunny Easter weekend, which I guess was, I guess MPs probably might have been a bit nervous about that. Um, Did we not give the public enough credit to start with?
1: No, we don't. I don't think overall the uh, public are trusted to behave well in emergencies. And that was reflected, uh, for example, um, in the media reporting of what would almost certainly been a minority of acts of people, and this is something I was interviewed about Sky News, people going out to beauty spots before the lockdown properly came in. Um, And it's not to say it isn't a problem, but this was a very minority behavior that was going on and the crucial thing that myself and other psychologists do is how do we create social norms to encourage people to do the right and proper thing which is to obey the lockdown and one thing I'm constantly saying to the media is that if you report instances of people behaving in individual and or selfish ways such as visiting beauty spots or stockpiling what the media often wrongly call panic buying that creates a social norm if people see that on the telly they then think well okay i can do that as well i need to do that as well and it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy and i'm constantly saying to the media if you report things as panic buying or people going out and seeing beauty spots you will create a self-fulfilling prophecy and whatever behaviors you are seeing at the time will escalate after media coverage of it
0: and i know you don't like the term panic buying um itself do you think then that was all driven by the media, essentially? Um, I think
1: the media had a very large part to play. I would be careful to say that there wasn't any stockpiling at all before the media reported it, but um, in previous instances um, of stockpiling, for example, in the fuel crisis of 2012, um, it almost always increases exponentially after the media reports it, um, because it creates a social dilemma. If people see what they think are limited resources in the fuel crisis, it was petrol, Um, more recently it's been toilet paper if people see the media reporting empty shelves people will then go out and think if I don't go out and get my supply I will lose out Um, and so yes it almost always increases it and whatever little behaviors there are and I've seen even some farcical situations where the media have almost been trying to create the situation where they've been running up and down petrol um, and forecourt queues for example in 2012 trying to interview people saying are you panicking are you scared and they're all Sitting their cars going, No, I'm really bored. I really wish I wasn't here, um, but I need to fill up my car with petrol. And so, the, the very idea of calling it panic buying, which implies that in sense some people are anxious, they're fearful, they're panicking, is just uh, ludicrous. It's not backed up by the evidence at all. You know, no one, for example, um, is having a panic attack while they're doing this. So, to call it panic buying is nonsensical and it creates a self fulfilling prophecy.
0: So, that might be part of it, but then obviously, you're also seeing if people are doing it you feel like you might have to do it. We see it on a non-emergency way when you might even go for a on a flight and you're sitting in a departure lounge and suddenly everyone starts standing up to go and get on the plane when they know they've got their seat and everyone else has start doing it even though you start saying, oh, why are they doing it? It's a sort of, if you see people doing something, then you you, you might do it yourself anyway, right?
1: Well, there is a danger of that social norm being created. So, what you need to do in that situation um, is say, look, you don't all need to do it. And a very good example of people who are getting up to go for the flights, what they do now is that people with priority boarding and people with vulnerable members of the family or small children, um, they say, people, then they have priority first and people tend to respect that so for example you don't tend to get a search when they start boarding and people allow the people with small children to go on first before they then board so um, it's not that individual behaviour can't be problematic but it's how do you create the social norms to say look you've, um, you've all got a seat you're all going to get on there is no rush
0: Behaviour now has quickly changed, hasn't it? I mean, queuing in two metre gaps outside food shops now suddenly feels a, a bit normal. It's only when you really think about what's going on that you can find this current situation quite odd. Does it show how resilient we as a population are, how humans are really quite malleable?
1: Yes absolutely I mean a colleague is doing some research with the hashtag new social norms on Twitter where they're being encouraged to report through what they see as new social norms so for example the social distancing is a very good example and some people have even said it shouldn't be called social distancing it should be called physical distancing because I'm noticing anecdotally and this is backed up by a lot of evidence is that while people are sticking two meters away from each other people are making eye contact more they're talking to each other more they're making space for people they're letting people go in front and then people are nodding their head in acknowledgement and saying thank you I'm certainly doing it more I'm talking far more with my neighbours than I used to so even though I'm not getting within two metres from them I'm striking up conversation so I would say it's physical distancing rather than social distancing and people have uh, virtual ways of communicating with each other Skype, Zoom and lots of people myself included are now having weekly Zoom meetings with friends and family instead of going out to the pub
0: pub quizzes becoming a massive thing i don't think they I'm doing one this weekend yeah well there we go never been so popular have they
1: yeah exactly so social distancing is a bit of a misnomer Mm.
0: um there is a theory that an extended lockdown could create some sort of i guess let's call it physical distancing fatigue um do you think people will get bored and many may start ignoring the rules or not maybe not many but more people may start ignoring the rules because it's been a long three and a half weeks for many already, not everyone has access to you know, a garden or some people are living on their own and and so it might be a bit tougher on, on, on some than others.
1: It's difficult when you're talking as a social psychologist to make predictions about the behavior of everybody because they will always be outliers, but generally I think yes if people are reminded of the need for it to save lives then yes people will stick to it i mean it's an interesting thing that we talked about myself and other colleagues in this area about the fear of lockdown fatigue i understand that it weighed heavily on ministers decision to delay the lockdown they were concerned about would people get fatigued by it and it's something myself and others said we signed an open letter that they, we are not aware of any credible evidence that people do get fatigue of Necessary measures. If they know that there is a need to do it and the social norms are there, the majority of people will adhere to it. And the example that I often use is the behaviour of the home front during World War Two, during the bombing campaigns of British cities and German cities in World War Two is that before the war started the authorities were terrified about hundreds of thousands of casualties and millions of psychiatric casualties of people not being able to cope with the bombing of civilian cities and the interesting thing about the data they found is that the home front never cracked over 30,000 Londoners died in the blitz and I think over 2 million Germans died in the bombing of the German cities later on in the war and the home front never cracked. Um, the social fabric never broke down. And after bombing raids had finished, people's social lives quickly then re-established within the physical devastation of their cities. So people um, aren't remarkably resilient in the face of ongoing threats. And so, for example, the bombing of German cities that went on for a good two or three years. Um, and there was no evidence at any point that the home front ever cracked, which was the stated campaign behind the mass bombing of German cities. It never actually happened
0: we don't really know how all these decisions are made by um mps we keep being told it's guided by the science which is quite a generic term isn't it do you think there's enough being talked about from like a a, a psychiatry point of view
1: um from a social scientist point of view no and it's something that we've talked about that they do seem to have a selective and skewed interpretation. and i suppose the problem with this outbreak is that you've got many different scientists to talk to you've got the virologists you've got the epidemiologists that talk about the physical viral road and the spread of the disease but also when you're looking at lockdown measures that's human behavior so you then need to consult with social psychologists social scientists about whether or not people will adhere to it and one concern that we had was that they seem to be having an overemphasis on an area of psychology that's called nudge psychology which uh, many so- social psychologists myself included are quite critical of because it's ethically quite dubious it relies on subtly manipulating people but the evidence for its effectiveness is actually quite limited and the areas of social psychology that I use would very much say if you want people to comply with messages rather than trying to unconsciously manipulate them it's much better to have them consciously identify with the message and they buy into it because they genuinely believe in it and they adhere to it rather than they're being subtly manipulated into doing something they they don't realize which is none psychology so yes I think there could be a broader spread of the messages that are taken on board by politicians and it is a bit skewed and unfortunately that's a political decision that they're advised by scientists but the advice that they take up and listen to is a political decision and for example in the Guardian today um, there was talk about a scientist saying that the, the government acted too late on the advice that they were being given and unfortunately we may see the effects of that in a high fatality rate than other countries that locked down earlier
0: mm. well yeah one of the government's advisors professor neil ferguson believes that a level of social distancing will be needed until there is a vaccine maybe not the measures that we have now but if there is better testing and contact tracing there could be some leeway but that that could take 18 months or so until we even see a vaccine um, so what long term effect could that have on people? Because, you, you know, do people need to get people need to get used to the fact that we're not going back to normal anytime soon?
1: Yeah, it's it's a big issue. Um, and there will be new social norms to adhere to, you know, things like that we are used to doing shaking hands, hugging, kissing on the cheek in the new kind of post COVID social norms. Um, that may be problematic and I'm taking think about specifically I've had discussions with friends who go to concerts because um, I used to go to a lot of concerts before the lockdown and there's a big discussion going on about when if ever are we going to see large concerts and festivals brought in again and NME ran a story last week that it may not be till October 2021 that large-scale festivals festivals and concerts come back in because how do you socially distance in a concert at Wembley Stadium or in the Pyramid Field at Glastonbury? Is it realistic to expect people to stay a metre, two metres apart? Um, And if people did adhere to that, um, the the social value that people get of going to concerts to be close to other people that are enjoying the same music as them, that is obviously going to be negatively affected if you are 1.1 one metre away from everybody. So there's a lot of different things to consider about it and um, how it goes and how we deal with it um, is anyone's guess. I suppose from my point of view, as a social psychologist, I would say that whatever norms develop from this in this post-COVID world, um, if it's accepted that that's the kind of the necessary thing to do to prevent um, new spikes of infection and to keep people and themselves safe, the wearing of masks and things like that, and new gestures of greeting people. I mean, I found one thing that um, I was doing recently before the lockdown was do the elbow bump or you uh, you touch feet with each other instead of shaking hands so it may be that we see new norms of interaction and yes it's it's a very interesting question to see how it will go but yes I think it will have massive um, impact socially about how we socially interact.
0: I mean you talk about concerts and uh, festivals and how that could take ages until we see them come back as so how premature is it then for you know sporting events to talk about even starting again in the in the coming months or later this year because it's the same situation isn't it so when those bodies are talking about possibilities of putting everything on from october onwards they're, they're surely in exactly the same situation as 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 music
1: yeah, it's it, again. It's an interesting question, and how they do that, you know, it's, it's, uh, I don't know. and it's, It will be for them to decide. Um, one possible thing, and this will have a massive effect on attentions, is um, if you have a large football stadium, say the Amex at Brighton and Hove Avenue, which is by our family campers, um, maybe a possible way to do it would be to have reduced numbers of people coming in, so you can still socially distance people sitting in there um, and people are two seats apart from everybody else. Again that will have a massive impact on the social experience because the atmosphere of being in a tightly packed crowd in the north stand um, when everyone's around you and everyone jumps up when it's goals, uh, when there's a goal and sitting there uh, two metres away from everybody else. um, That's not going to be as enticing. I suppose it's possible as well. They might play the matches um, to just closed stadiums and not invite people in and screen them. Um, But then again, you have the issue, which is pre-lockdown, was um, there was a concern that if you have the matches behind closed doors and you screen them out, people are watching them in pubs, the risk of COVID transmission in a small pub rather than a large outdoor stadium are far, far higher. And so all of these things are going to have to be considered.
0: Um, if as is predicted measures are eased but not lifted so we sort of work backwards from how the measures were brought in because i think that's kind of how people maybe are thinking it might happen um is there a possibility we sort of see the opposite to the panic buying we see too many crowds will gather when they're being advised to have some sort of level of physical distancing because we've all been cooped up for so long by that point
1: what do you mean? That people will physically will seek out being physically closer to other people?
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: Um, I don't think they would do that completely unconsciously, uncritically. <laughs> um, <laughs> people uh, may choose to identify with certain types of people, but I'm not aware that there's any kind of inherent propensity for people to seek out crowds per se the crucial thing which is what myself and other people look at is the degree of identification in crowds so for example uh work that a colleague did on spacing and distancing within crowds found that people will tolerate higher crowd density if they identify with the crowd so say for example if you're in a packed crowd at a gig or a festival you won't consider that an aversive experience whereas if you're in a packed commuter train going to work and you have no physical you have no psychological connection with people around you you're much more likely to report the lack as an aversive experience. So I don't think people will seek out crowds per se, but if, for example, we say you have a concert goer who hasn't been to a concert for six months because of COVID and then one of their bands, they like it playing. So for example, Manic Street Preachers are putting on two stadium gigs in Cardiff to thank the NHS. hopefully post lockdown I can see that people will want to go and go to that because it will be an experience that they've been missing but obviously someone who doesn't like manic Street Creatures probably wouldn't want to.
0: We're actually seeing from yesterday he's talking about Fat Boy Slim doing the same thing at Brighton Centre for NHS workers so we've got a local example of that happening as well in October. could
1: yeah they probably won't let him do another gig on brighton
0: beach but that's no No, you're right that's a whole nother conversation i'm sure um now with your with your training background um i mean there has been speculation that obviously the lockdown not speculation i mean it it will it will happen that the lockdown will could have negative effects on on people's mental health and that creates other problems um what do you think do you how how big an impact could that have if it goes on for a longer time
1: Yes, it is a concern and my particular area of clinical interest I worked in is sort of vulnerable uh, children and adolescents. Um, If there are children that are in problematic and complicated family situations, if there's domestic violence, if there's abuse, if there's substance abuse, um, being in lockdown can be uh, an issue for mental health, but not physical health, well and safeguarding issues. Um, So yes, it is a real concern. Um, I don't currently work in the air anymore, but colleagues that do are very concerned about that at the moment. And I think what they'll probably be thinking about is switching to more remote forms of therapeutic intervention. So, for example, I know the colleagues are looking at now doing Skype and zoom therapeutic interventions because at the moment they can't do face to face Um, maybe that will be more easy for young people because they tend to be more technically uh, technologically literate and they will find it easier to have a therapeutic uh, intervention over skype and zoom than say an adult who's less technologically literate might be so it it might be more easy for people to engage with these new norms depending upon uh, their age the demographic and their levels of technical literacy but yeah it's a clear concern and at the moment there's real physical effects, for example, of uh, increased alcohol consumption at home. Uh, People are not going to the pub um, and people are drinking more at home. There's concerns about that, long-term effects of that, and obviously the consequences social effects of um, drunken behaviour if there are family dynamics in the house so yes there's a whole raft of things uh, we don't honestly know how it's going to bear out um, how long it's going to last for but yes I can see that there's going to be um, a lot of work for those that work in psychiatry um, and uh, mental health and well-being to see how they can help people deal with long-term consequences of this yes
0: do you, do you think that might influence some of the decisions about lifting all these measures
1: um, I don't honestly know. Um,
0: what would you do? I, I,
1: it's a very difficult one because you don't want to just get into a simple numbers game of saying, OK, so if we do lockdown and that will prevent a certain number of vulnerable people dying from COVID, you then have the unintended consequence. And I've seen, for example, in the Guardian estate, there are an increase in domestic violence related murders going on at home. There, There is a spike in that. Um, I would guess that's less than the amount of people that were died of COVID. But, you know, that's an awful situation to get into because you don't want to trade one off against the other. So it's a very, very difficult situation to to manage. And I I wouldn't want to be the person that did because both of those are tragedies.
0: The final sort of... A negative slant on this one, Um, and we've sort of touched on it already with um, the press, but at the moment we're seeing daily calls from journalists and opposition MPs to find out what the so-called exit strategy is. Um, Does that in itself cause more negativity towards the lockdown potentially because we always, or do we sort of feel like, do we as humans need to know roughly what the path is ahead of
1: us? Um, it's a good question, and we shall see. I mean, it's not it's not an area that I'm that expert in, but I do know, for example, of colleagues that work in military psychiatry, where they've done work with people in active service. Um, they found that being honest with people so for people who are in active combat in situations who want to know when they're going to get out of it um giving them false hope and saying we'll be out in a week and then that not being true is far worse than being honest with them and saying we do not honestly know so i think you can be honest with people you can say we're not sure how long this is going to go on for if you impress upon them the vital we need why they do it it's not to say that you then don't need to think about possible exit strategies Um, whether or not the discussion of exit strategies will then cause people to be more fatigued is an open question my hunch would be um, if you are open with people that you do not know when the lockdown will end and that's that's within any discussion about exit strategies think people will be able to cope with that ambiguity, that ambiguity so I don't think it's irresponsible per se to talk about exit strategies but obviously if we're still in the middle of a lockdown the priority of the message and of the social norm is for the moment unfortunately we still need to adhere to it um, what I think is most likely and again this won't be my decision nor my area of expertise but I guess that there won't be a complete break of the lockdown it will be phased and it will be gradual which is what they're doing in Denmark they're allowing um, the less vulnerable groups, young people to go back to nursery and things like that. So that, I think, would be what any lockdown looks like, where well- when it ends it will be phased it won't stop all in one go so the idea that at some point in three weeks time um they'll go okay that's it you've done all your work well done everyone go back to normal as you were before um i think that's not going to happen so and being honest about that i don't think would be harmful i think people will understand that we we can't go completely back to the way things were before in one fell swoop
0: let's end this conversation with um Bit more positivity. We touched on it earlier. The fact that you know we are seeing communities come together a bit more, aren't we? We're seeing a sort of a sense of solidarity that we are all in this together. We, you know, you're, like you say, I think everyone's sort of talking to their neighbours a bit more. You're a little, a little nod, a little good morning to someone on your daily exercise if you're just going for a walk or something, or going to get some food. It's a lot more of a, it's a lot more friendly out there, isn't it, at the moment?
1: Yeah and it's one thing that we've noticed in the research that myself and other people have into mass emergencies is that you get a remarkable amount of emergent solidarity and cooperation and people really do come together and I know it's used in a rhetorical way by politicians saying we're all in this together but there is also empirical evidence to show that that people do come together. The example we used the uh, and the, the, the most stark example I often use is we research 7-7. Seven, seven, and um, before 7-7 seven, seven happened, we were asked by people, um, uh, by journalists, in what crowds might people behave antisocially? What crowds might it be difficult for people to come together and get this solidarity? And I thought, well, if you're in a packed crowd where you're in a physical mass, but you've got no psychological connection with people, then maybe it would be more difficult for that solidarity to emerge. And then I remember Jenny saying, "Well, what kind of crowd would that be?" And I thought, "Well, a packed commuter train um, or a packed tube train in rush hour, where people don't talk to each other, you might see that." Uh, I'm pleased to say that we were completely proved wrong in that theory because in 7/7, this solidarity emerged straight away. So people, before the incident happened, you had no connection with each other at all. People don't talk to each other in so Suddenly, then cooperated with each other massively. And it's not that everyone paves like um, Total Lions and Heroes or whatever. As you say, it's the small mundane things, it's what we call, it's uh, It's the oil that wheels the social cohesion, it's the standing back, it's the comforting someone, it's saying, are you okay? It's passing the bottle of water around, finding where there is someone trained in first aid that can come and help that person, and comforting people, holding their hand while they're dying, that happened a lot in 7-7. So it's all those little mundane things that allow the more, the, the, the greater cooperative things, the life-saving skills, that helping the ambulance and emergency services to come in so it's all part of a much bigger picture and yes I think that's one very positive thing about this outbreak is that it is showing people's inherent cooperation um, when, need, when need be and people do come out and they are there for each other and that can be a very reassuring thing in these incidents and every Thursday night people stand on their street, it happens in my street, and clap the NHS and it's a very powerful thing to see it often moves people to tears.
0: And because this could last for such a long time, could they actually have quite a positive long-term effect then on how we all sort of behave as a community?
1: It's a good question, and it's something we often get asked, is how long does this cooperation last? Does it, does it just last during the incident itself, or when the danger and the threat has receded? Will there be an ongoing residual sense of cooperation? I think in this situation, because I was talking with emergency planning colleagues last night about it, this emergency is unusual in that everybody is affected. Uh, previous incidents, so you got a terrorist attack somewhere, a location is affected and people might feel a sense of sympathy and connection with it but in this situation we really are all in a similar boat we are all locked down at home talking to each other via Skype and so that may mean that the bonds that is brought from this will last longer because everyone will share that bond it wouldn't just be a fleeting thing that you saw an incident and you were in it together and then you move away from the incident so yes I think there is a real chance that this bond will last but we shall see it's, it's an open question I hope so
0: we're seeing extraordinary appreciation of um, the NHS, of supermarket workers, bin men, posties, um, and we're seeing some extreme generosity and extraordinary achievements as well. You know, I mean, 12 million pounds raised for the NHS, like Captain Tom, amazing. Oh yes,
1: yes, I saw
0: that. I mean, just incredible really. And I guess you wouldn't see these uh, like um, in a situation which in a normal situation, day-to-day, in, a, in our old social norm.
1: Yeah, if you don't have that sense of connection, cooperation with other people is less likely. And there's many different studies that have shown that, about how, how, how and when bystanders intervene. Um, if uh, people don't feel a sense of psychological connection with the people in need they're much less likely to intervene many many different studies of bystander intervention have shown that so the crucial thing is um, not all bystanders don't help if they can help but how do we encourage the situations to make them help and this current um, epidemic does give the opportunity to that because getting back to what i said we are all affected so we all have the same shared experience we are all locked down at home um, and so we all understand and empathize with each other's situation
0: really interesting stuff um, thanks so much we end every podcast with the uh, the following questions away from work yourself and your your cat and i can hear that as well yeah sorry um, she does that when i'm that's talking good good him. good to have extra guests on um just to get this is just to get to know this is just to get to know our guests a bit better uh, first question is what advice would you give to your younger self
1: Uh, don't be cross with the compromises that your older self may make in, um, in the work that he does in getting his message across. Okay.
0: Um, if you could pick any subject to study at the University of Brighton, something that you're not associated with now, what would
1: it be? Not associated now, probably be politics or philosophy, because I always feel that I missed out on that side of my studies.
0: Okay. Pick a favorite place in Sussex.
1: Uh, castle hill nature reserves beautiful nature reserve that's a quick bike ride right away from the farmer campus where i work but it's um absolutely kind of in the middle of nowhere but very very close to the city i live in
0: and let's pretend that all measures are out the way at the moment if you could give visitors to brighton and the area a tip of what to do and experience for a weekend or something what would that be
1: i'd say hang out at a bar in the lanes or a cafe in the lanes and sit there and watch the world go by because that will give you a really good idea of what Brighton is about um, and then wander down to the beach later and have an ice cream. Yeah,
0: nice, um, tell us something interesting about you which a lot of people may not know.
1: Um, during the 2011 Jasmine revolution in Tunisia I happened to be there on holiday and it all kicked off around us and we found ourselves in this castle um, in town on the coast where the Monty Python Life of Brian was filmed so we had this bizarre situation where there was a full-on riot going on at the bottom of the castle and I was filming uh, the crowd destroying seafront properties that belonged the hated president um and then we realized we were standing in the very spot where terry jones um, from monty python did his speech of the he's not the messiah he's a very naughty boy uh, which was uh, quite a bizarre situation to be in
0: yeah god that must be a really odd way to god it was a very strange emotion at that point i imagine um and finally if you could pick three people to host at a dinner party past or present who would they be and why
1: Uh, I mean, Sigmund Freud, Karl Marx, and Guy Debord. Uh, Sigmund Freud, father of psychoanalysis, Karl Marx, uh, the author of Das Kapital, and Guy Debord or the author of the Society of the Spectacle. I think it would be quite fun to pour myself a bottle of wine and sit back and watch them verbally spar with each other.
0: Chris, thank you so much for your time. Really very much appreciated. Now, there's a number of ways you can subscribe to this podcast. You can do it on our YouTube channel and subscribe to the podcast playlist where you found this one if you're watching it. Or you can listen to the podcast and subscribe via all the usual apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, tune in just search University of Brighton if you're not already listening that way for now it's goodbye